Hello and welcome to episode four of the Blocks Decoded podcast. I am Gavin Phillips and this week I'm here with Dan. Hi guys, how you doing? James. Hello. And Joe. Hi everyone. Jolly good. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about a 51% attack on the Bitcoin Cash blockchain. Uh, we're going to be looking at a new proof of stake idea called Conflux. Uh, we're going to be looking at some leaked news from the Telegram Open Network. Uh, and we're going to be looking at pro athletes that want payment in cryptocurrency rather than fiat. Uh, then moving on, we're going to look at who's actually responsible for cryptocurrency hacks. What are Ethereum ERC token standards? And who's going to protect your cryptocurrency when you die? So first up. This week, there was an attack on the Bitcoin Cash blockchain. Now, sounds pretty bad, but in fact, it's for a different reason than you're thinking. Normally, a 51% attack would be uh, something to worry about. It means that miners have taken control of a blockchain and are potentially manipulating the transactions that are going on. In this case, two Bitcoin Cash mining pools combine their resources together to attack their own blockchain. That's so that they could roll back uh, a vulnerability that appeared after a recent Bitcoin Cash hard fork that allowed an attacker to steal thousands of Bitcoin Cash tokens. Uh, now, 51% attacks are quite controversial, and it's interesting to see that the Bitcoin Cash community have appearingly sanctioned an attack to roll back the blockchain uh, blockchain to recover these stolen tokens. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading the news about this before we started. And I mean, you mentioned there that the, the community is fairly in favor of it. I mean, I've seen both sides. I've seen people arguing that they should have just left it alone as well. I mean, there's a lot of ethical questions there for sure. Yeah, and what about all the people who had legitimate transactions you know, after the point where they're going to roll it back from what? It starts to get very messy very quickly. Do you think they should have left it as it is then, Joe? In my opinion, yes. But I think this raises greater concerns uh, over whether or not they did it. But rather that this time it was supposedly in the public interest. But what about next time? What if they just decide, you know what, we didn't like that thing which just happened. Let's roll it back for our own reasons. Well, yeah, it is interesting that just two mining pools had the ability to combine together to get the 51%. I mean, it kind of goes against the whole decentralized nature of everything. If if they can so quickly agree to do this, what other things might they collaborate on in the future? Yeah, one, absolutely. one of the mining pools, uh, I think it's btc.top, has around 40% of the control of the mining pool itself. Anyway, the entire mining power of Bitcoin Cash. So it doesn't take a lot for that particular mining pool to perhaps find collaborators, like you yeah. said, that in the future might want to make a, an attack on the blockchain for more nefarious reasons. At some point um, in the past, BTC Top have had over 50% of the network on their own, uh, which is probably even more concerning. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, were they the ones that they had to split up or did they have to just have to relinquish the mining power? Or am I thinking of the Bitcoin 
blockchain itself? Because I know previously one mining pool broke into two because there was too much power within a, a single pool. I mean, I, I wrote an article on the website uh, a couple of months ago looking at some of the 51% attacks since 2018. And it is, it is a growing problem there. I mean, Verge has been done twice, Monocoin, Bitcoin, Gold, Litecoin, Cash, Zencash, Ethereum Classic. Uh, and now, obviously, this thing at Bitcoin Cash, it, I'm not sure of the exact details of all of those off the top of my head. They're all variations of the same thing, but it's a growing problem. And they're taking on the self they're, they're taking on a self title of policing the blockchain, um, which you know, I'm not sure is necessarily a good thing. No, absolutely. Uh, for the people who, well, people, people didn't even lose currency themselves did they it was the fact that the 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 second fork there was a vulnerability in it that allowed um double spend basically so 3392 bitcoin cash were not included in the reorganized chain meaning that they could have remained in the attackers control so who knows we'll have to wait and see if there's any further implications down the line um, are, are any coins safe from this? I mean, I'm not technologically knowledgeable about, enough about it to know. Are there any coins that are immune from this process happening? Well, uh, proof-of-stake coins are slightly less vulnerable. I'll say slightly, um, because as we're going to find out as we move on to Conflux, that you, know, you can still sometimes buy your way in. Yeah, absolutely. As, as Joe says, we'll move on to... Uh, news point number two, which is the discussion around Conflux, a new proof of stake idea whose testnet hit six and a half thousand transactions per second, which is pretty fast for a for a new blockchain. Uh, and that was spread over 20,000 individual nodes, which is very encouraging, showing strong signs that it's going to be extremely fast and, and relatively scalable. Uh, what, what do you think, Joe? Yeah, so let's just clarify that their testnet they spun up amazon aws ec2 servers so if you don't know what they are they're just you know amazon's cloud servers and you can almost pay them as much money as you like for these absolutely massive servers so we probably need to be a bit skeptical here because we don't know how big the servers they paid for they may have just said you know here's a million pounds we want it to be as fast as possible so it may not reflect a real world usage and of course they may have been in the same data center so they had super fast networking between them and all sorts of things like that mm-hmm. so, so it's quite possible that the real world usage will be a bit slower than that but yes it is promising and for those of you who don't know what proof of stake is, this is where if I have 100,000 coins and instead of mining, I can just stake them. So I can say I'm going to lock them up and I'm not going to spend them. And then you, you basically, it depends on the implementations, but you vote for uh, a group of people or a person to represent you. And when that person gets a reward, assuming they have the most votes, they decide what to do with it. And it's often share it between voters. And so the problem here is, even though it often changes every six hours, if you have 10 million coins and there's only 20 million coins around, you can effectively control what happens. You vote for your representative and you tell them what decisions to make. So Conflux's idea is that they will use something called a directed acrylic graph or DAG. 
and this isn't new to them. This has been around and suggested before. But the simplest way to explain this is with a traditional blockchain and without using DAG, if I want to send a transaction or I want um, Dan to know about my my transaction, I have to send it to perhaps James and then James has to send it to Gavin then Gavin can finally send it on to Dan. Often there's no way for me just to send it directly to Dan. Whereas with DAG, it adds these sort of interlinking nodes. So I can send it to James, but then James can simultaneously send it to both Dan and Gavin as a very simplified example. So it avoids lots of hops around all the nodes, and this in theory makes it far quicker to run. Mm. Then they've got a lot of interesting investors as well, probably most notably uh, F2 Pool and the crypto exchange Huobi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but I might not be. Um, and they pumped in at the end of last year, the end of 2018, um, those two companies and a a few more pumped in $35 million into the Conflux project. So we're thinking there's going to be some pretty exciting developments coming out of there in the next sort of year or so. I think they're looking to get a main nut up by the end of this year, I believe. Yes, that's, you know, 2019 quarter four is when they're aiming for, uh, for their main net launch. And so they did raise, as you said, $35 million, which is a, a fair sum of money. But let's not forget here that IOTA is kind of doing a similar thing. It may not be quite as fast or as promising, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for IOTA just maybe a year ago. Um, well, the, the hype around IOTA cooled quite quickly, almost as quickly as it started, didn't it? Um, there's a lot of people who in the end sort of started calling out iota i believe and saying it wasn't ever going to be what they promised uh, in the white paper and technical papers to the beginning so here's the hoping conflux can build upon the promising testnet mm-hmm. absolutely because one of the most exciting things about this would be the decentralized apps or the d apps because you need a high transaction rate. Otherwise, like you can't really do anything on them. I've tried some of the social networking prototypes based on other blockchains, and they're very slow mm. because of that exact reason. So if they can actually make something like this work, then we might actually see dApps get widely adopted because people can use them. Yeah, there's a similar thing for um, games and uh, people trying to start sort of uh, esports on with blockchain bases and thinking that's just not going to happen. It's not going to work, at least at the current time, until we have blockchains that can continually and efficiently process to a, an extremely fast fast rate. So. Exactly. Um, talking of blockchains and new developments, there's been some news about the Telegram Open Network. Uh, the Telegram Open Network is going to be the blockchain of the Telegram private encrypted messaging app. They launched an ICO last year. It raised $1.7 billion, which is just a bonkers, bonkers amount of money. Mm -hmm. They raised so much money that they closed the ICO early. It never reached the public sale phase because... I think the amount of institutional investment they got 
just blew them away. Wow. Uh, and yeah, I mean that figure it is is staggering. So you'd hope that with the amount of money they've now got in the bank, um, they're going <laughs> to produce something quite exciting. Um, the first sort of few details are leaking. It is hazy still, but it says Telegram intends to use uh, sharding to create a fast experience for its blockchain users. Um, and there's going to be four roles in the Telegram open network. They're going to be validators, collators, nominators, and fishermen. Um, fishermen is a new role, one that I've not heard of before. I think it is new to the Telegram open network, but it has a similar role. There are similar roles within other, other blockchains. Um, but the role of the fisherman is to catch um, transactions, invalid transactions, published by validators. So if a quorum of validators agree that the transactions are false, invalid, the person who tried to validate them gets punished and the fisherman receives a reward. Um, so that's an interesting interesting design to help keep... Just to rewind a little bit, just rewind a bit there, Gavin, what is sharding exactly for people who may not know? Yeah, I was just about to ask the same thing. Um, I'm going to pass over to Joe for that one because I think he can... Yes, so, so sharding is a... Uh... It's a bit of a buzzword in cryptocurrency. It's like adding blockchain to your company name a couple of years ago would give you a bump on the stock market. <laughs> but it is a genuinely good technique. It's it's used. It's not just for blockchains. Used in big databases. It, it's essentially if you have I don't know five hundred million people using your app, like something like Facebook, and you just have one database. It could be a massive database with all the servers in the world, but there's going to be a bottleneck somewhere and the people in Australia perhaps don't need to access the data uh, for the people in England. I mean, they might occasionally, but for the most part, they probably don't. So sharding essentially just chunks up your data to, could be 10, could be 100 chunks of mini databases, if you like, and then it just runs them all on their own servers so that you, you get far more power um, and just makes everything generally faster if done correctly ah, that's that's a good explanation way way more precise <laughs> than I possibly could have hoped to deliver <laughs> so thank you Joe <laughs> um, I think a lot of people will be looking at the introduction of the Telegram open network because it had such a ludicrously high uh, ICO when that eventually starts hitting exchanges what's the price going to look like are people going to make a lot of money? Where where's it going to enter? So, is there any indication of when that might happen? Um, like Conflux, I think they're aiming for Q4 2019. So, towards the end of this year, we should start to see some more uh, D apps that are ready to work on it, and uh, perhaps the release of a of a mainnet. So, that's a be a good one to to keep your eyes on. I think for sure. Rounding up the news this week with the announcement that a few pro athletes in America have requested their well, they go, uh, American football teams to pay them in cryptocurrency. Uh, Morgan Creek. Smart, smart guys, mate. Ahead of the curve. Well, that's it. That's it. So. Matt, NFL quarterback Matt Barkley asked the San Francisco 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals, his two previous teams, to pay him 
in Bitcoin. Both of them declined the offer. Um, fellow player Russell O'Kong also asked, and again, he was also declined, which is a shame for them, but I think that, that they've come out and made it a public statement is, is quite interesting, hoping to move the bandwagon on with this. Definitely. I, I also read a story, I think you sent it round, Gavin, about uh, these Gibraltar footballers mm. uh, doing doing a similar thing um, or attempting to do a similar thing that their chairman had promised to pay them in crypto and those promises have fallen somewhat flat as the season progressed. Yes, they are. You're, you're absolutely right. The Gibraltar Premier League team, Gibraltar United, uh, offered to pay their team in cryptocurrency. The players actually agreed to it and were apparently looking forward to it, but that has still yet to appear. And that was at the start of the previous um, European football season, so July 2018, and we're now coming up to June 2019, the end of the season. So perhaps that's something for the start of next year. Um, whilst I was listening... Did, did, Karen? Sorry, go on. No, go on. You continue. Sorry, go on. That's all right. I was saying there's an interesting company called Bitwage, um, which is aiming to give companies the ability to pay their workers in cryptocurrency or percentages of cryptocurrency. So you could give a 50-50 fiat and 50% Bitcoin or whatever. So I think there'll be more companies like that coming out. I was, I was looking at, going back to the Gibraltar story, I don't know if you looked into this Quantacoin that they mentioned in the story there. Did you read about it or not? Uh, I didn't have a good look at it. No. But it's a, so, so, so I went up. I went on their website just out of curiosity after reading the story there and I noticed that, and I know you'll like this Gavin, that one of their ambassadors for the coin was Mr. Patrick Clivert, who uh, for, for people who may not know is a, was a Dutch footballer who played for a lot of top European clubs in the 1990s. So I don't know if he's either, if, he, if he's suddenly become a cryptographer overnight or, or if he's, uh, I, I, I can't imagine he was at consensus a few weeks ago. Oh, who knows? I wish we, we could find out. <laughs> uh, so, just before we move on from that then, so for people that are sort of interested in the tech side of blockchain, it seems obvious why you might want to be paid in crypto. But for people that aren't into it, so let's imagine like the Gibraltar football team is probably not heavily into cryptocurrency themselves. Maybe they are, maybe, maybe I'm being unfair. But what is the rationale that sort of like a quote-unquote regular person would want to be paid in crypto in the first place? The, the reasons that I can see is, uh, first, your salary might go up overnight. That's always a positive. Obviously, the flip side of that is that it might rapidly decrease. Um, I'm sure there's tax reasons for it not tax avoidance but it there might well be especially in gibraltar which is has, nudge, has yeah well, <laughs> tax laws um anyway so that might well have something to do with it i think the the two nfl players in america it must be that they are genuinely interested in crypto and they want their wages in cryptocurrency i imagine their wages 
are quite substantial as well. So yeah, for sure. I mean, that's yeah, it. Yeah. It's can... going to make so little difference to them. They might as well take the gamble. Yeah, exactly. You know, if they get paid, well, I don't know, uh, what's an NFL wage? A hundred thousand a week? Or um, more, I would say. Something more, like I think, that. At the top. Yeah. So you know, a hundred thousand. So if they got paid a hundred thousand in crypto just two weeks ago. They would be laughing right now, <laughs> wouldn't they? So, <laughs> yeah, retirement. That's why they're not doing yeah. it. They don't want them to retire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, well, uh, we've got a, almost a real-world use case of crypto, haven't we? We, All of you guys and myself, we have a lot of writer friends, and when you're getting paid from overseas sources, um, and especially people who own websites are paying people who perhaps live in all kinds of different countries and so you have to you have to kind of fathom your way through multiple different currency bank transfers with the delays and fees involved there where you have to use something like paypal or any other money service where you have more fees and they can freeze your account almost on a whim you have to get verified and it works okay sometimes but you know i've had friends who are just like yep paypal decided yep you're not having your account we're gonna hold that money for a couple of months yeah yeah that's I an mean, interesting uh, point about the fees actually i hadn't hadn't considered that one hmm. i was looking at like other f- footballers that have become involved in cryptocurrency ronaldinho announced the launch of a cryptocurrency of course he did of course he did Louis Figo uh, endorsed an ICO Michael Owen launched uh, so it's, it's a, a who's who isn't it <laughs> <laughs> I know she doesn't play football but uh, didn't Paris Hilton start endorsing an ICO as well oh, she did it's all, all over, it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, up now. It's over. Floyd Floyd Mayweather uh, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, and uh, what was his name? The DJ guy, DJ Khaled. He had to pay loads of money back, didn't he? Yeah, that's quite recently, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it got revealed as a complete scam. So uh, yeah, the SEC charged him for fraud. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, Ghostface <laughs> Killer from the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> this- the list is endless and amusing, so um, perhaps we'll, we'll we'll make an article around that uh, oh, yeah. in due course for for blocks decoded. So keep keep your eyes peeled for that, guys. Um, moving on to articles that are featured recently on the blocks decoded site. The first one we're going to look at today is who's actually responsible for cryptocurrency hacks. So I'm going to hand over to Dan Price. Yeah, thanks. So, um, yes, I was, obviously last week on the podcast, we were talking about the Binance hack and Joe was giving some details about that. And hacking's been in a lot of the headlines recently. So I thought I would take a look at who exactly is supposedly profiting from these attacks. Who's coming out with the money at the end of it all? Uh, As you can imagine, it's not particularly easy to find out. (laughs) However, um, two two reports uh, seem to be leading the way. Uh, split opinions, but some interesting conclusions can be drawn nonetheless. Uh, the first one from March 2019, uh, Kaspersky Labs, who obviously well-known in the PC security market, uh, they thought, based on their research, there was a single group responsible for more than 50% of all crypto hacks since 2017, which is a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, the latest research suggests that 
that now stands at 1.3 billion, the total value of all crypto hacks. So Ooh. if you're looking at 50 or 60 wow. percent of that, you're talking about half a billion dollars for, for these guys. That's a lot of money. It certainly is. So they think Lazarus Group are responsible. Uh, Again, they're well known in certain circles, but for some listeners who may not know, they're one of the most notorious, should we say, online hacking groups. They've been around for the best part of a decade now in various forms. They launch attacks uh, on Korean government, bank robberies. They've been accused of bank robberies, cyber espionage. I mean, they're, they're some people who you don't necessarily want to be crossing. So, And they're also the guys that were supposedly behind the WannaCry ransomware attack back in 2017. So... Kaspersky believed that Lazarus was behind all five of the biggest hacks of 2018. So that includes the 500 billion hack on NEM, on CoinCheck. And then the other side of that, uh, a report from Chainalysis, um, who again, people who may not know, they're an emerging online company aiming to bring transparency to the blockchain, exposing fraud, money laundering, these kinds of things. They released a report in January 2019, so a few months before the Kaspersky report, and they drew a slightly different conclusion that two groups were responsible. Uh, and those two groups combined were responsible for 60% of all exchange hacks. And the actual conclusions they drew are very interesting. They thought one group, which they only refer to as Alpha, and I quote from their research, a, a giant, tightly controlled organization partly driven by non-monetary goals. And the second creator, less organized and smaller organization, absolutely focused on money that doesn't appear to care very much about evading detection. So you would assume probably that Lazarus is one of those two. Who knows? Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Who knows where the other 40% of the money's going? You know, they, we're still only talking about half of the available of all the cases here. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's happening quite recently. I. Um, I actually recently wrote a post, um, which is yet to be scheduled on it, about kind of a lot of times when hacks happen, the funds kind of get tracked down and either tagged uh, or otherwise blocked. And so often, and I believe, I may be mistaken, I believe certainly some of the NEM hack funds, um, they just can't get rid of them because everybody's watching the accounts and nobody will associate with them or anyone they then transfer funds to. So they're kind of a bit stuck sometimes. So it's a little bit like marked notes, like for bank robberies and stuff in the more in the you know the physical world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the other forty percent you're talking about is being more like people committing just more basic sort of ransomware attacks to that account in here or is this just specific I, I, I couldn't tell you I mean I guess so we were talk, it was talking about the total value of all crypto hacks so you would assume so I mean is there no feasible I don't know I'm nowhere near knowledgeable enough about it for lone wolf attacks here can one guy hack an exchange or does it require a serious network of people to make these things happen I think in the early days perhaps it was easy for a single person to take down an exchange it may well still be if you've got the correct knowledge and we've seen with the leak of uh, NSA hacking tools and uh, another sure. yeah well yeah absolutely yeah another particularly powerful tools that if they fall into the wrong hands bad things can happen uh, lone wolf single person who knows 
Do we think it's perhaps more likely for lone wolves to be operating in more exit scams and tiny little exchanges where they just take all your funds and leg it? Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, rather rather than actually breaking into a cold wallet of somebody else. Well, I would I would agree with you uh, on that, and adding to that, uh, the the rise of sort of ransomware as a service um, on various sort of underground websites means that almost anyone can actually get their hands on ransomware, plug in a a ransom amount, and then start sending it out in the hope that people respond. Yeah, I was thinking that ransomware is probably contributing to a, a large chunk of that. Well, the, the Lazarus group was supposedly responsible for the WannaCry attack, so I, I don't know how much that supposedly ended up earning, shall I say, in inverted commas, them in the end, I don't I think, if I'm remembering right, I don't think it was that much money. I think it, it was, was only a limited h- amount. It was in the hundreds of, of thousands of dollars. It, it was, yeah. Like, for the amount of disruption and damage it caused. The- yeah. 300,000 computers were affected around the world. I mean, that shows the yeah. reach that these guys have got. Yeah, it was like people almost uh, dying in the UK, wasn't it? Because it took down the, the NHS or parts of the NHS. So and that was yeah. the, some of the biggest damage that WannaCry did. Yeah, scary stuff. Health services all over the world. I, I remember writing an article about that on our sister site, Make Use Of, and uh, I mean, you know, health services in Latin America and China, they were taken down everywhere. You know, hospitals all over the world. Still, there we go. So don't give your money to these guys. That's the lesson of the story, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I just want to pose- you, you use hardware wallets, everyone. <laughs> I suppose another question to do with that, though, when, when a, a massive exchange gets hacked do you think the onus has to be on them replacing the funds for everybody even if it means the demise of the exchange absolutely yeah i absolutely agree as well yes i mean if there are, if crypto is to have any degree of legitimacy in the future there has to be those safeguards in place and yeah but ultimately you shouldn't keep your funds on an exchange no so if you do get something back you're probably very lucky yeah, count yourself. If, if, if Bitcoin and or crypto in general is to become this global phenomenon, it's already on the way to becoming. If it ends up fulfilling its potential, you just can't have those things, those types of things happening. It, ha- it has to be resolved in some form. You can't have it yeah. continuing. Yeah. So in the UK, I think it's if a bank goes under and you've got a current account with them, you've got up to I think it's eighty five thousand pounds protected. Mm-hmm. It will be reimbursed to you. But anything over that is obviously your loss. So it oh, incentivizes true, yeah. you to kind of keep an eye on it so that you're not mm-hmm. holding too much money in a certain place, but also makes the organization, in this case it would be the exchange, accountable so that mm-hmm. you've got some level of protection which gives it a legitimacy, which means people are more likely to use it. I mean, that's the regulation that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general need on that same level as a regular bank if it want they want to continue becoming more legitimate to the regular regular people but do they though because your bank you, you could store 50,000 pounds your british pounds or dollars just in notes keep it under your mattress and then if something happens to it, that's your own fault so most people put it in a bank but it's not like you can just build a big vault at home and stick your stuff in it you could buy a $50 safe which somebody can just take the whole safe but 
Bitcoin's different because you can store your own keys. So you can store your Bitcoin just as securely, perhaps even more so than an exchange. That's true. And yes, there's yeah, always the good old five pound wrench attack if all else yeah. fails. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on, let's talk about Ethereum token standards. Uh, this is an article that I wrote for Blocks Decoded. Uh, you can go read it now. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes. And it's looking at what uh, the Ethereum ERC token standards actually are. You may have read ERC20 in your reading and perusing of the, the cryptocurrency world. ERC20 is the most important, I would say, uh, Ethereum token standard. Um well, ERC stands for Ethereum Request for Comments. So the ERC part of it um, notes that it's the technical standard for Ethereum-based tokens. Um, all Ethereum-based tokens have this in front of their their name. So you have ERC20, which I said is kind of the most important. It's the original Ethereum token. Um, there's ERC two two three, ERC seven two one, seven seven seven, one one five five, and so on. There are thousands of ERCs. It doesn't mean that they are all tokens in production. It doesn't mean that they're all going to be uh, standards that you're going to interact with. Many of them are ideas for tokens um, new features for Ethereum tokens that people can attempt to gain interest in and if there's sufficient interest in the token then they might find that people want to contribute to the project and help make it into something that other Ethereum tokens uh, will implement um, going forward so ERC20 um, is the most well-known. It was the token standard proposed by Ethereum co-founder Vitalik Buterin. And you will find it almost everywhere. And furthermore, almost all Ethereum tokens, even if they're not an ERC-specific token, they will be compatible with ERC20 wallets. So say you had... Uh, an ERC-223 token, you would still be able to store it and send it to an ERC-20 wallet. And that's the beauty of it. They're all different token types, but they all have the same foundation. Yeah, well, there's not too much to cover unless we're going to reel off what all the standards are. But many other languages have this. You know, you've got Tron's got its... TRC10 and TRC20. Mm. And even outside of cryptocurrency, you have programming. It's quite common to get an RFC, so a request for comment on a suggestion. And languages like Python have PIP, Python Improvement Proposals. So, so it's nothing particularly special to cryptocurrency. Mm. So what would, what, would, what would draw developers towards, or even a, an investor towards, tokens based on one rather than another? Are there significant differences between them? Is it really that that diverse what between ethereum and tron no sorry no between the different standards in use oh well well the standards are just 
it's kind of something you should have for your token. So, and often they're just proposals and requests for comments. So it's people saying, I'm a, I'm part of the network. I'm a, I'm a core developer towards Ethereum. And I think we could improve this area of the code like this. And then other people will chime in and say, oh, yeah, have you thought about this? And what about if it does this? Then eventually, if enough people like it and it varies on the project, it gets accepted and it becomes, it gets developed or maybe it's been developed already. And then it becomes part of the main core code, if you will. Okay. So an example of this um, would be the ERC-223 proposal, which reduces the um, gas amount, that's the, transaction fee in the ethereum blockchain by 50 percent cool yeah so erc tokens you don't have to understand them all there's thank god yeah exactly because there are thousands of them but it is good to have a, a basis in some of the more popular ones and the more common ones that will start filtering out as as ethereum continues to develop yeah ex- exactly and if you're a miner you probably want to sort of keep an eye on them for ones which may negatively impact you or cause you a problem potentially so am i right in thinking it's kind of like an issue tracker or a feature request on a github project for example kind of yeah yeah i i would say that's a a fairly good equivalent yeah well these these projects on github still have feature trackers Mm. yes yeah but yeah it's probably more detailed than that that you can follow it through from initial discussion through to implementation and being part of the core code right yeah, okay. like it like an issue yeah uh talking of issues what happens to your cryptocurrency when you die joe wow yeah that'd be a big issue <laughs> yeah. yeah so so this is a recent article on blocksdecoded.com and you've got a couple of options just straight out the gate if you don't do anything and you've got a load of bitcoin and you expire <laughs> uh, it kind of kind of nothing will happen to it it will stay exactly where you put it um and so if you're holding your own keys nobody will get hold of it and it'll just sit there forever more being inaccessible and so you see possibly it depends how uh, paranoid you are you, you, you may want to do something about this. So you've got a couple of options. I'm sure there's many more we haven't covered. The first one, and probably the easiest one to do, is use a multi-signature wallet. And so many languages support multi-sig wallets, and this is a bit like a joint bank account. So I can have two people or 100 people, however many I like, uh, to sign transactions on my wallet. So if I create a multi-signature wa- wallet with Gavin, I could set it up in a way that I can't withdraw any funds without Gavin's approval and he couldn't withdraw any funds without my approval. So if you did this with, say, three trustees or all four of us and you specified a minimum of two people to change funds, then should you die, there'll always be another two people, at least, hopefully, who can then withdraw the funds, providing they know how to do so. So Uh that's quite a good option. Another option is you could just tell your family you know, this is where I store them. This is where I keep my private keys. Maybe very under the mattress. Yeah, or under your floorboards <laughs> or something like that. Another thing you can do, which is a bit involved, but it might be a fun little project, is create your own smart contract, which says 
you could perhaps have it like a dead man switch so you have to check in every every month say and if you miss two months then it it does something like transfers your funds to a different wallet which could be a family member say or it, mm-hmm. it emails keys or whatever and then the final thing you could do is just use an actual dead man switch email service which is a little bit risky but you can get around it whereby um, you just use a free email service and they email you regularly and if you don't reply to a couple then they just do whatever you told them to do often send an email so you might not want to get them to send an email with all your private keys in it but there's lots of way around around these they all all these options rely on trust you have to trust somebody whether it's a lawyer or a family member or an email service but you don't have to trust them 100 you could just give them maybe half your private keys or give one private key to 10 different people or something like that it's it's all about kind of having a backup plan if you think you're going to die and you would like your bitcoin fortune to be passed on so what, what's the best solution for your average guy who's just got some bitcoin sat around you yeah suggested? just write it down just tell your family this is my private keys are here obviously if you can trust them hmm i don't i genuinely don't know what what my wife would do i mean it's not like i've got tons of crypto tucked away but um Maybe as soon as I finish recording this podcast, I'll show how to. Yeah, as we're talking about it. But Maybe there's a. Oh, sorry, after you, James. So I was just going to say, I suppose it's a bit like a will, really. You're kind of thinking ahead to what may happen should you pass on. And I suppose crypto's not really any different, is it? You've just kind of got to have an idea that when you go, someone has a bit of knowledge somewhere that allows things to move on and progress a little bit and for if you want to pass on some of the value to your family or your spouse or your children that someone has the capability to do that and the know-how beforehand mm-hmm. exactly yeah well slightly worrying times now that we're all thinking about it on our, our own mortality but um, yeah and on that note <laughs> on that note <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> Um, that does bring us to an end this uh, week thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the Blocks Decoded podcast Uh, we are now up and running on iTunes, we are on Spotify, we're on TuneIn, Stitcher we are basically we're everywhere, everywhere. can't get away from us Yeah, wherever you want to listen to us, we are there. If you feel so inclined, we would be incredibly grateful for any reviews, likes, comments, shares. Um, And with that, we will say goodbye. Goodbye, guys. Thanks for listening. See ya.